Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. Police found 27 corpses. Australia's worst serial killer. You know, I didn't want to get in the car. I actually... With Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. Hello there and welcome to Monsters Who Murder. She's a criminologist, a serial killer whisperer, but we just know her as Amanda Howard. Hello, Amanda. Hello, Robert. How are you going? Good, good, good. We solved a bit of a mystery this week because you put a very strange posting out on Facebook and you were in the Belangelo State Forest in about 1995 and you showed a picture saying, I am going through some old photos. I saw this photo and we've got the picture now and I have no idea what a guy was doing there in the Belangelo State Forest where Ivan Malat killed people. And you had no idea who it was. And yep, I'm, I was no looking idea. at this post. And when I looked a bit closer, I went, is that me? And <laughs> sure enough, it was. <laughs> it was. See, I've been trying to get this podcast going for like 30 years. So <laughs> I, just, I, could, I couldn't believe that it could be anyone else. It's like, you know, who am I taking out to Belangelo? I mean, it's not sort of like a first date place. So, um, I haven't taken a whole lot of people out there. So, but yes, I had taken you out. And as soon as you didn't said, even remember, I think it was me. No, <laughs> I was about to say that. So when you said it was you, I went, no. <laughs> but then I thought about it. I thought it has to be you. So um, it's always interesting. I mean, I've, I've been going through these photos because I've been digging out a lot of extra stuff for the museum. So um, you never know what you find. I have not seen that photo since 95. So wow. I was totally clueless. It's just weird the stuff I dig up from my archives for um, for the museum. So. <laughs> and when you look at that photo, you can tell I didn't know the camera was going because I'm certainly not posing for a photo. <laughs> And that's rare for you. So, rare, um, very unlike John, me. <laughs> John on the Facebook group said, do you also own a Bigfoot costume? Because he claims that your posture there is very much like Bigfoot. So. Oh, thanks, John. Okay. <laughs> There's been some great comments. So this is what we do on the Facebook group, guys. So, uh, they've certainly um, talked about me this week. Um, the, last, <laughs> the last conversation was about my Russian accent. Oh, yes. Um, some people call it a hate crime. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> the Cold War has been reignited. It has. <laughs> Thanks, Robert. Hey, look, we've got Diane Downs coming up a little later on the show. That's our psychological profile, of course. But I want to ask you, before we move on, about your murder museum, because that's coming <laughs> up very, very soon. Tell me about it and what's happening and when the dates are, please. 
Okay, so I have um, uh, June 19 is at Parramatta Jail. So uh, that is the first event from 2 till midnight. Um, and so people can come and go as they... Well, they can't come and go, but they can come any time between 2 and midnight and they can come and see what I've got and have a look around and have a chat and go through my bits and pieces, like going through my underwear drawer, it feels like. But anyway, and then I've that just released extra. today the, t- <laughs> and the tickets for Geelong, which is uh, the weekend in July of the 15th, 16th and 17th, have just gone on sale today as well. So there's three events at Geelong Jail. So that's in July. So I'm going to be a wow. busy girl. I promise the podcast will still be coming out. We might even have to work out how to do one live from Geelong Jail. We'll work that out at, at a different time. But I just think it's going to be great uh, to see all this new stuff I have. So some people have been to the museum before. Please come back. There is going to be a lot of the stuff that you've seen purely because you don't sort of throw it out and start again. Yeah. But um, I've opened up a whole lot of my archives to actually go through and bring out a lot more stuff. So um, I've been uh, madly spending time to, trying to get all of this together and uh, it's coming up so quickly and I'm a bit excited. But um, <laughs> today we are here to do Die and Dance, so we've got to focus there. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, what I love is that we, as usual, are having our production meetings on air. I didn't know we'd be yes. doing it from there. Uh, <laughs> we'll work it out as we always do. Hey, look, uh, Dying Downs, as you said, is coming up. But first, let's get into the news stories of the week. And we begin with accused serial killer William Lewis Reese. He's been found guilty of murder for the first time since a series of young girls were murdered in Texas and Oklahoma in 1997. But the guilty verdict actually came from another part of America for an unrelated case, that of the murder of Tiffany Johnson in the town of Bethany. Click to Houston.com has more. We, the jury, impaneled and sworn the above entitled cause due upon our oaths, find as follows. The defendant is guilty. No emotion, no statements. William Reese didn't even flinch. It took an Oklahoma County jury less than two hours to find Reese guilty of murdering 19-year-old Tiffany Johnston in 1997. But this is far from the only murder Reese is suspected of committing. Reese was serving a 60-year prison sentence for the 1997 kidnapping of Sandra Sapaw in Galveston County. Sapaw escaped and helped put him away. While in a Texas prison, Oklahoma investigators used new technology to link Reese's DNA to Johnston's body along with a phone card used shortly before she disappeared. Charged with that crime, Reese started talking and hoping to cut a deal. Reese admitted to his involvement in the kidnapping and murder of Laura Smither, who disappeared from her Friendswood neighborhood in 1997. Her body was found a few weeks later. That same year, Jessica Kane disappeared near her Tiki Island home, and Kellyanne Cox disappeared from Denton. But it wasn't until 2016, Reese finally led investigators to Kane's body buried in southeast Houston, and Cox Cox's remains buried in Brazoria County. He was then charged with all three murders, but has not yet faced trial in those cases. Amanda, it's going to be interesting to see whether he is sent back to Texas to face trial on the other accusations of murder. Well, because he's um, likely to get death penalty in Oklahoma, I think uh, the Texas uh, sentencing will sort of come later if he goes to to trial at all, because uh, in the US, those states that still like to uh, execute their prisoners, they often sort of keep them for that. So it's sometimes worth having that sort of plan B in their pocket just in case they do want to try him again. If they decide there's a technicality on the Oklahoma case, they can then go to Texas. So it's Mm. always good they have these 
these extra, well, it's not good because there's dead people, but it's it's good they often have um, an extra strategy uh, to make sure that this man never walks free again if he is found guilty of the Texas cases. So it's, it's something that they do do, and it's just part of legal wrangling, as we heard in that they've actually taken death penalty off yep. the table for Texas, which means that it's interesting now to see if it's worth pursuing that. But as soon as there's an appeal on the Oklahoma cases, bang, Texas is going to, you know, just jump up and say, we'll take him. Now, if he is given the death penalty, is it worth Texas trying to have a trial as well? What's the benefit of that? Is it so the families get closure? Because it will just delay uh, the death penalty, won't it? Uh, the the death penalty is delayed anyway, so it mm-hmm. it would be about um, the families having their turn in court, you know, right. and that's all it will be. We know that he has um, apparently given a confession, so that's not going to change anything. But they may want to actually address him themselves, and I think that there is sometimes a lot of healing when families actually get to face the people who took their loved ones away to then say, "You did this, and this is what it's done to us." So they may they may not. I think it's going to come down to what happens with the Oklahoma cases first and then Texas will get their turn. But I I think there will be one, but I don't think it's going to be like next week. I I think it will be a while away. And, yeah, the death penalty takes forever. Um, You know, it can take 30-odd years. So, really... Yeah, well, people have died while on the death penalty, right? Yeah. Hmm. They have. They have. So many people have, have died waiting for their death sentence. I mean, I know that Charles Manson had his uh, taken away, but, you know, he died of old age. Uh, Lawrence Bittaker died of old age. So there is a quite a lot of serial killers and murderers that are on death row that will never see the death chamber. Okay, well, moving on. And there are fears a serial killer is on the loose in British Columbia, Canada, after the deaths of two young women. The two women were killed less than a year apart on the same stretch of highway. Global News spoke with a truck driver who discovered one of the victims. Yeah, I felt bad. It's it's still something that... It's still with me. A professional trucker still haunted by what he discovered almost one year ago. It's senseless. This young this young lady and the young lady that they found the other day, this didn't need to happen. The body of 19-year-old Melissa Elizabeth Steele was found near Highway 1 between Hope and Yale on May 26th. On June 3rd, 2020, Stephen Gilmer was driving south through the Fraser Canyon when he heard radio chatter about someone passed out on the side of the same highway. She was lying on the shoulder. I stopped and went over and checked on her. There was nothing I could have done. The woman found north of Yale was later identified as 29-year-old Alicia Hatterina Berg, her death suspicious. When I walked up on upon her and saw what I saw, the injuries I saw, it's something nobody should have to see, right? Homicide investigators say Berg spent time in the Fraser Valley while Steele was known to frequent downtown Vancouver. Hoping that it isn't uh, there isn't a serial killer or or anything like that happening police are appealing for dash cam video from drivers traveling between hope and boston bar in the hours before both women were found amanda the similarities between the two murders that certainly points to the same killer right 
It suggests that there is one. I mean, we've only got two, so it's not quite a pattern yet, but we are getting closer to that sort of thing where they've been found in the same place. They both led transient lives. They're both young. They're both white. So there is a couple of bits and pieces there that sort of say, hang on, set what's going on. But we know that the RMCP does not like to say there's a serial killer. We know Yes, that we've been down this before path before. Exactly. So what they're saying now, you know, they're saying if anyone has dash cam, that's all they're asking for. So, um, and this truck driver is basically the focus of information for this case because, again, the police are being uh, tight-lipped on it. So mm. um, I, I'm concerned about the truck driver sort of giving out this much information. But uh, why is uh, that? Let me let me ask no? you this: people, <laughs> you know, uh, there were some accusations that these women were transient, and that's of course, not an excuse, but they led a transient lifestyle and this is where they were murdered, basically. Um, but isn't this information good for anyone else out there who might be thinking of hitchhiking along the way on this stretch of highway? This now must be considered a dangerous piece of highway. Why is it bad that that information is out in the public domain? Well, because not that it's, it's going to tell people don't hitchhike, because they are. But then you have all of those sex workers who work the freeways and they are seen as as a high-risk victim, so they mm. are likely to get attacked. The sure. transient lifestyle is actually more about that's hard to track them down where they go. If they live at home and they have a nine-to-five job, it's easier to work out where they were taken. So it, so, so the transiency of, of their life just sort of makes that just that little bit harder. But um, it's it's not a warning. It's not going to reach the ears of those people who need to know to keep safe. Um, but, you know, it, it is it is a very um, tight balancing rope that we have here that um, we need to get this information out, but at the same time we don't want to sort of give out anything else that might sort of um, tee off or, or, or kick off another killer or a copycat or to make this killer actually move elsewhere and do it somewhere else so it's even harder to find them. I mean, a, a serial killer will get away if they change their victimology, change their MO, change all of this sort of stuff, because then they can't right. find a pattern. So um, him him sort of going through all, all of this, it just, there's a bit of concern that he was so keen to sort of pull over and see this girl and, you know, make sure that she was okay. It just, it's odd for, for them to do that, but um, especially when apparently it was over their radio system for quite a while before he yeah. sort of pulled up and checked on her. So, I mean, we don't know how long she'd been there, but there is starting to see a timeline of her arriving because they do have that radio chatter but um you know it's two victims so far it's it's piqued our interest and it will be a case that we will follow but it could also be just uh that lifestyle and there is although um, two murders amanda in the u.s well, there's like hundreds along the freeways in in the US and they don't know if they have one serial killer who's prolific or if they have 50 serial killers taking sure. turns. So the the highways are a danger across the globe. Let's face it, you know, we, we had Ivan here. So it's just one yeah. of those things that we're going to have, have to watch. Um, they're 12 months apart. Um, if this is a serial killer, we may see a third victim less than, than 12 months away, but it is something that will now be on my Google searches and <laughs> We shall watch that news. All right. 
Hey, how's this for a conspiracy theory? Willy Wonka is a child serial killer. That's the fan theory going around about the popular film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Now look, the theory goes that the main character purposely chooses terrible children to visit his factory so that he can kill them. The theory is based on the idea that Wonka intentionally chose his victims for the tour and tempted them with a weakness he knew they would succumb to, leading to their deaths. Augustus Gloop was sucked into the Chocolate River. Veruca Salt is projected down an ambiguous garbage chute. Violet Beauregard is turned into a human blueberry and Mike TV is shrunk to three inches. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory never details exactly what happened to the four spoiled kids, but while we might have assumed they were okay, those incidents could have actually led to their deaths. Amanda, this is a wild theory, but it actually makes sense to me and you were saying this has been around for a while. It has, it has. It's been going around for at least 20 years online. <laughs> wow, really? It's been going on before that. <laughs> exactly. I mean, like, the girl goes down the garbage chute. You know, one, it's with squirrels and one, it's with golden geese. But it's like, um, yeah, where do you think they're going? Like, she's a bad egg, so she's going to the furnace. Like, they're, they're being killed. I mean, in, in the Johnny Depp version, they actually come out at the end and, and are met by the, the, the cheering yes. crowds. But... Um, yeah, this is, yeah, it's, I don't know why people love these movies. I, oh, I love this movie. Horrible. I love no, Willy Wonka in the Chocolate it. Factory. It's one of my all-time favourite movies. That's why, and I'm 20 years behind on the internet, obviously, but I read this today <laughs> and I said to you, we've got to include this because I just loved yeah. the theory because oh. it actually does make sense in a way. Here's this guy getting rid of these bad eggs. Yeah, I mean, why would he want these sorts of people to run his his company? Wasn't this the whole reason that he kicked humans out to begin with? It was because he didn't want people stealing secrets and stuff. Mm. So, I mean, I, I just, <laughs> except for the train ride, which I love because that's gory and gross and, and terrifying. I love that scene. The boat but ride. other than that, it's, yeah, yeah, love it, love it. <laughs> and that was I always just, the scene I hated as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we go together so well. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's it it is something that a lot of people have sort of said. Hang on a sec, what happened to the other kids? And it's it's sad that we don't actually have a conclusion. I don't know if one of the other books sort of says that they turned up and they're now Oompalumpas or something. I don't know. But it is something that I think a lot of us have sort of thought about over the years. What happened to the other kids? Because he literally says, you know, oh, she's. Pr- I don't think. Yes, it's but he was playing it up. He was joking. Enough. He was saying, oh, they've gone down on the furnace. But it is Tuesday, so. It might be the after. You know, like, it's this random guy who's trying to put the fear in them, but you figured, as a kid, you figured he actually had a heart of gold like we saw at the end when he gave Charlie the chocolate factory. No, because he goes off at Charlie first, and that's horrible. That scene terrifies me, where where his hair's going all fluffy everywhere. I hate that scene. You know, you (laughs) get nothing. It's like, oh, it's just awful. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) You you know what I'm like? You get nothing, sir. Nothing. Yeah, exactly. And that room is all half <laughs> half cut. It looks like it's from a clockwork orange, that, that whole scene. I don't get it. I don't understand that children are allowed to watch these movies. I mean, he can get decapitated. I mean, he is trying to terrorise these children. This is about psychological torture before that. I mean, For like, sure. I agree with that. All the- 
because you know we can go into the whole thing that when they go on on the boat ride augustus gloop and his mother didn't actually have um a seat on on the on the boat so they knew that they weren't going to make <laughs> so, never I mean, thought carefully planned strategic <laughs> events and then on the on, on the train thing as well that there's not enough seats there if you watch what they're doing there is areas where it's like yep he knew he, he was going to have people dead by now so it's it is a serial killer movie i maybe i should add it to my website of serial killer movies um but i just oh it's yeah it's been around forever and yes i think we need to know what happened to those children the johnny depp version is crap um sorry guys but i think that they're sort of giving us a rosy ending though the violet girl ended up really stretched along because they sort of stretched her out which was yeah really yeah yeah we uh, ignore that um yeah I, I can be convinced. I <laughs> I thought the whole movie was about teaching us life lessons about no. not overeating, not stealing things. You know, it was it was a movie meant to teach us to be good kids, and we could one day win a chocolate factory. No, just me no. then. Okay, <laughs> you're probably right about the serial killer thing. Hey, as you well know, we are now on Uscreen where you can watch the videos of each and every episode. For just $15 a month, you can take out a subscription to Uscreen where you get every episode that we've made on video. Or you can buy the episodes for just $5 a episode. But there's also Patreon, where you can get a whole list of bonus features, depending on your tier. But the $25 tier on Patreon does include the videos. So, for Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash mwmconfessions. And for Uscreen, just go to mwm.uscreen.io. That's mwm.uscreen.io. In a moment, we will... We'll continue Monsters Who Murder Serial Killer Confessions with Diane Downs. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. Police found 27 corpses. Australia's worst serial killer. Even though I didn't want to get in the car, I had to. With Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. On the evening of May 19, 1983, Diane Downs pulled up to the Mackenzie Willamette Hospital in Springfield, Oregon, and calmly asked for help, claiming someone had just shot her and her children in an attempted carjacking. Medical personnel rushed to the car to find seven-year-old Cheryl already dead and eight-year-old Christy and three-year-old Danny clinging to life. Diane herself had also been shot in the arm. As the medical teams rushed the two children into the operating theatre and others tended to Diane's wounds, her story began to raise suspicions. She told anyone who would listen that they had been victims of a carjacking and she was acting far too calmly for a woman whose children had just been shot, especially when instead of asking for news about her children, she instead asked to use a payphone to ring her lover, married man Robert Knickerbocker. Police were soon on the scene and the evidence in the car did not match Downs' story. There was no gunshot residue nor blood splatter that could corroborate her story. 
After a nine-month investigation, she was finally arrested on February 28, 1984. So, Amanda, we are starting from a very unusual point, and that is the parole hearing for Diane Downs. Yeah, so I thought this was a great place to begin because we expect that if she's going to a parole hearing that she's actually going to be as truthful as she possibly can be. Of course, that's not going to happen. But I just thought this was a great place to start because this is going to give us a clear timeline to what she believes happened that night. So then when we compare other versions of her story, it just sort of sees where she sort of lies, where she changes things up. And just it's just going to be a very interesting journey, this one. Right. Okay, so take us through what we're about to see. Okay, well, I would love to say that this was a 2020 parole hearing because she's in one room and the parole board is in another room, but it's actually in 2010 that this has happened. So she's uh, sitting in blue prison scrubs. She's in a blue room. There is an an American flag behind her and the parole board are via camera and we're actually in the room with them and we're watching her on a TV screen. So she's actually still got that Lady Diana sort of flip hair that she has always had. It's no longer blonde, but it's actually very, very grey. And she actually sits there with her hands under the table. So that's an interesting thing too, just sort of seeing that she's probably keeping handcuffs out of the road um, while she tells her her story. But the way that she tells it, it's just, let's let's do it. It's just, it's amazing. (laughs) Okay. Why, do we know why they're in separate rooms? I think it's just purely because the parole board probably does a whole area in all the different prisons and rather going to have the prisons uh, and doing it like like we see on TV, they sit in one place and they get everyone up that day rather than having to travel between, you know, because makes sense. hundreds of miles sometimes, yeah. All right, well, let's go to the video and have a look at Downs' parole hearing from 2010. Do you still maintain that you did not commit these murders or the, the murder and the other crimes you were convicted of? Absolutely. I didn't commit them and I still maintain my innocence. Well, I've got to say, 11 seconds is not the shortest grab you've had a stop at, but it's close. Why are we stopping at this point already? Well, he asked her, um, is she still maintaining her innocence in these murders? Now, uh, she doesn't say those words. She doesn't say kill. She doesn't say died. She doesn't make any reference to that. She actually says, you know, I did not commit them. You know, I still maintain my innocence. The scariest part, though, is that the parole board guy actually says murders and then corrects himself to murder and the other charges. I mean, that this guy already has his his thoughts and ideas on this already set. I would have asked for them saying, Let's not go any further because he was already biased straight away. We, we can see that. So, do you think you can call someone biased to, at a slip of the tongue? Well, he should know the case and he should know that it is one murder. It's, you know, it's very simplistic. It's sitting in front of him. This is a high profile case. Mm-hmm. She's been in jail for 20 odd years, uh, 30 odd years. Um, he knows this case and he's actually sort of that, that, that slip is a bit Freudian. I think he is planning to put her away for the deaths of her, her children, even though two of them did survive. They were actually severely dis- disabled by the shooting. So I think that he, his, his mind was set 100%. Okay. Well, she's then asked to describe what happened on the evening of May 19, 1983. My kids and I were sitting at home watching TV. We were watching Helen Keller, the Helen Keller story. 
I received a phone call from someone who said that he wanted me to come pick up some photographs for my boyfriend. Not of my boyfriend, but for my boyfriend, Rick. Got to say, there's a couple of things that um, spring to mind here. It looks like she's told this story a thousand times. That's the first thing that comes to me. Um, But it sounds like a fair enough recollection so far. Except that she's going vague and precise at the same time. So this was at 9.15. They were watching the Helen Keller story. There's actually no movie called that. It's actually called The Miracle Worker. So that's for, for a start there. And then apparently some random guy rings up and says, come and get the photos for your boyfriend. And it's not of her boyfriend, but, it, but it's boyfriend's photos. You know, and she's just trying to sort of almost be uh, sarcastic with, with what she's saying. She, she just wants to sort of get through it all. But, I mean, she starts the story here. This is an odd place to start it. Most people would start it when she's on the road with the kids in the car. But she starts earlier in the night. And at 9.15, she's getting her three children, as, as we said there, seven, eight and three, put them in the car at 9.15 at night and drives off to meet some random guy to get photos. I mean, it's just unbelievable that this is the story that she's going to tell. <laughs> um, what was interesting when she said, but not of him, That is that just strange? That's just her playing it up. This is right. her saying, you know, oh, because people are going to say that they're salacious photos, that they're, you know, that they're just um, ah, sex photos okay. and everything. But she's trying to say, oh, they're, they're not. They're, you know, artistic photos or something. It probably is porn photos. Who knows? But really, we don't need to know about that because they don't get there. That that That's that's not really part of the story. So but it's so this isn't a Jodie Arias uh, case, which we saw. The, the, the whole case was based around the photo shoot that they were having in that hotel room. Yes, no, this is this is totally different. So this is her reasoning for going out that night, apparently, to, okay. to some guy whose name she doesn't know to go and pick up photos for her, her boyfriend. Right. Okay. Anyway. Maybe photos was code for something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Downs continues with her story, and everyone, get ready. There's a lot of detail here. Rick is a guy that I'd been dating for about six weeks, and he claimed to be an FBI agent. Whether or not he was, I don't know. I certainly never called him at work or showed up or made him prove it or show a badge. It didn't matter to me. I wasn't, (laughs) to me it was just all, it was just dating. Okay, that's bizarre. Uh, <laughs> I, I never turned up at his work or anything, but he's an FBI agent. Okay, what the... Well, he's actually an FBIA agent. She oh. made sure to do that extra A in there. And then she's like, now she's saying, oh, I don't believe his stories. I think that's why she's saying that oh, I never turned up to his, his work or anything. But she did. She was a bunny boiler. So she, she was someone who sort of followed him around. This all actually is 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 centralized on his desire to not have children this is what this comes down to and you know though we're just looking at her confession and her going through this story it is because rick had said to her i don't want kids so thanks but no thanks they had been only dating for six weeks so this is a short-term relationship but she's already sort of laying down her defense saying but i didn't do this i didn't do that i didn't do this it was a new relationship it was just dating so what she's doing is is providing that 
alibi that uh, she didn't shoot her children um, for him, so she obviously didn't shoot her children. That's what she's trying to say in all of that. Okay, you used the term bunny boiler. What does it mean? Uh, well, it's from Fatal Instinct. So uh, Glenn Close's victim, uh, Glenn Close's character, uh, took the child's bunny and boiled it on the stove to sort of send threats to Michael Douglas in the movie. I've only seen it, I think, half of one time. I ha- but I just know that scene, and most people do. So right. um, it, I've it, never it, seen it. Weirdly enough. Turn. Oh, okay. Yeah, they use the the. the I was too busy watching Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was watching Fatal Instinct and things like that. So, um, our base no basic instinct. Basic instinct. Fatal, Fatal instinct, instinct was the, the comedy takeoff, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, my uh, goodness. Going back to Diane Downs, uh, we heard what she said before, but she doesn't stop there. Have a listen. But I received a phone call about 9.15 from someone who said I needed to come pick some photographs up for Rick. I piled the kids in the car. We went out to go meet this person to pick up the photographs. I stopped by Heather... Wow, I can't remember Heather's last name now. I stopped by Heather's house because I'd been, I told Heather on the phone a few days earlier that I had a newspaper ad for her. So she had been wanting to buy a horse and this was a newspaper ad that would allow her to adopt a horse. So I had told her that I had a, that I had a newspaper clipping for her that I'd found at work. So as long as we were going out to meet this guy to pick up photographs, we went by Heather's house. Heather said, I already got a horse just the other day. So we went to see the horse. Uh, It's interesting. Um, We are talking about the death and maiming of her children. But one thing I notice looking at that is she looks like she's stuck in a time warp. You know, that's video from 2010. But just looking at it, she looks like she's just come out of the 60s or 70s with the way her hair is and just her demeanour. It's interesting when people go to jail, they're not influenced by the fashions of the outside world, are they? That's right. There is that arrested development. So she's stuck in 1984, basically, with the big Lady Diana hair and all of that. So so that is definitely something that you have noticed, and very well done, um, that, that she is stuck in, in an era that has long past gone, um, but she still has that desire to look like that. So though they have television and all of that sort of stuff, their, their life essentially stops, and now it's just time. And that's how they actually see it. Um, you know, I've talked to many serial killers about this. And, yeah, their life stops, but time continues. So that's why she's stuck in the 1980s. Yeah, well, there's a lot to take out from what she just said here. Let's go through a few things. She's picking up the photos for Rick from some guy, and she gets stuck on this idea of Heather and not being able to remember her last name. What do you make of all that? Yeah. 
Well, it's just amazing that she said there that she contacted Heather and said that she had this article, but then when they get there, Heather says, I've already got a horse. So which part of that is, is, is the truth? And, you know, and then she goes on saying, well, because she already had a horse, we thought we'd go and see the horse. But this is 9.15 at night that they left home. So this could be like closer to 10. And she has these children outside in the cold and they're going to go and look at someone's adopted horse. And this seems normal to her. You know, don't worry about the kids going. <laughs> I've got to say, though, I, I know I, I know this is the difference between you and me. This is probably something I would actually do. If a friend had a horse and the ki- uh, kids were with me, I'd say, oh, let's have a Let's go and see if we can see the horse. Okay, it's a black horse in a black field at night with yeah. no lights. I'm sure we can make it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'd say, no, we'll go on the weekend when it's sunshine and you can take some sugar cubes and some grass or something. That's what I yes, would do. Yes, but you do. don't have ADHD. <laughs> All right. Now that she's spoken about everything else, she finally turns to the actual events of the night. Let's have a listen to this. We got back in the car. We left. I went to meet this guy. Somebody in the road flagged us down. I stopped and got out of the got out of my car. And he said something to the effect of, I want your car. And I laughed at him. And I said, you've got to be kidding. Because in my mind, those kinds of things don't happen. In Arizona, those things don't happen. I don't know about Oregon, but in Arizona, those things don't happen. And so he jumped into the car, leaned into the car, and started firing the weapon. And it happened so quickly that by the time he stood up and faced me, it was over. I mean, it was just that fast. Do you think she believes anyone is buying this? Well, she's hoping that they are. She has this so well rehearsed, and this is 2010, and she went to jail in like 84, 85. So she has told this story many, many times. But can we play that last 10 seconds again? Because there's something there that I want to show you guys. Okay. By the time he stood up and faced me, it was over. I mean, it was just that fast. Okay, what are you seeing? (laughs) That grunt, she lost her train of thought. She forgot the next part of the story. And so that, oh, she's like, oh, I missed where I was supposed to go to have the next part. This is her children being shot and her being shot, and she can't remember the story. So they try and tell the story so often that it does become a script. But this is the point that she has to actually make it stick and make it work to see if she can actually get freedom. And she stuffed it up and she really realizes and she almost gives up then you know and she could have gone into a thing oh this is so traumatic still for me and everything but instead she's like oh you know i'll just i'll just keep going now that i've i've lost my train of thought so it's i lost my place in the script i need to pick up and keep going 100 percent. yeah well she then explains what happened next i he said something about the car again and i struggled with him the gun discharged He fell back, I jumped in the car, put the keys in the ignition and took off. The car door shut by itself. That's it, and I went to the hospital. Okay, so let me get this straight. He had shot all three kids, he then asked her for the car, she said no, so he fired at her, but then she fell backwards from the force of the gunshot and she was able to escape. Hell of a story. Yeah. 
It's, it's, it sounds great, but it's amazing that he can fire at these children with no kickback, but then when he fires this time, there is kickback and all of this sort of stuff. But it's amazing the terms that she used. She said nothing about the children. She said he, he got into the car and started firing. So it's what does that about, tell us? Um, the lack of use of or the lack of references to her children, what does that tell us from a psychological point of view? She is totally separate from this. So she is not in that car. She is not with these children. She's not screaming at him like a mother normally would. Like, I would just attack. I would go for the throat if someone comes near my children. And I've embarrassed my children sometimes because I think the people are coming at them and I get right in between them. Um, but I think that what we have here is a woman who has no personal attachment to her children whatsoever. And mm. we're actually going to see this several more times. You know, and he started shooting. Not, oh, my god he fired at christy and she started screaming or danny was terrified and, and was calling for me none of those dramatics none of those theatrics that should have been happening when mm. these children are being shot she is totally he's and he started firing what is she doing while he's getting in the car and firing yes he has a gun i get that but if someone's shot at my children my god i would be more than standing there going so do you want my car no yes you know and that's what she's telling us that she did that she stood there and waited for him to shoot the three children. Then he come back around to the other side to say to her, I want your car. Like he's going to take off with a car with three dead children in it. Mm. Like it does not make sense. Yeah. Okay, so they're at the hospital. Downs continues her narrative. But Amanda, you've asked me to go back a few seconds for this next section. Let's see if we can work out why Amanda wants to see this bit. That's it. And I went to the hospital. Christy and, Dan, uh, Christy and Danny were in the back seat. When we got to the hospital, they were still crying. Um, the nurses reported that they were still crying. The state says I, that I was the one that shot them and that I wanted them dead. If that was the case, I would not have taken to the hospital still crying. There are so many other ways to accomplish such a horrific deed if I was going to do it. I'm certainly bright enough to figure out another way besides some way that looks so absolutely insane and hokey that nobody would believe it. I'm not dumb. That's actually not a bad defense. Yeah, except that she said there that the reason that we went back was her saying, and then we drove to the hospital. And she was done. And then she goes, oh, oh, now I actually have to talk about the children. There's literally three seconds when she thought that she had said enough. And that just proves her story that, you know, the, the trauma would have been talking about rushing her children to the hospital. Now we know... in Okay, so that's why we went back earlier on the clip to show that we part back. where she finished speaking yeah. and then realised she had to keep going. Yeah. Because, as you're saying... In her mind, I got to the hospital, that's where the story ends. Yeah, exactly, because okay. she is telling a lie that is just, um, you know, full of hokey shit that she, that she was calling it because she has no interest in seeing if these children live or die. And literally in court we find out that witnesses saw her driving to the hospital and she was going slow and taking every back road she could find because she wanted the children dead by the time she got there. That's what she was expecting. She didn't want to shoot them again. She'd already done the horrific deed and she wanted them to 
expire and you know one of her girls actually had a stroke so she thought that at least two of them were dead and Danny was still sort of groaning but Mm. you know she for her to say oh and then we went to the hospital you know this isn't the story of a trauma of a woman who is innocent who is in jail for murdering her babies we're not seeing that we're not seeing those words we're not seeing that remorse you know if she is innocent where's the passion where's the you have me locked up and you know and you've denied me access to my children where's all of that part of of this story this is like Mm. now we're going to go through this again and you know this is what happened and oh i'm not dumb i would have come up with a better story the the simplest story and this is that a black man tried to um uh, steal the car and shot the babies there's all of that as well and when we do the susan smith um story as well that will be a similar case that does almost the exact same thing but she actually goes for all of the dramatics and it makes for a very interesting study but she Mm. is is trying to say look the story is so sublime that um you know I, I couldn't have made it up. This has to be the truth because I, I would have just like drowned the kids at home or, or something if I wanted to do that. But no, this is what she's trying to say. And the fact that she says I'm not dumb, well, she is. She's, she, she's thick. <laughs> and she doesn't realise that she can't do this the right way. Well, she's actually asked about the various sto- stories she told about the assailant. Let's have a listen how she answers that question because this is a really important question. This is what somebody told me. This, it, how do I explain this? After my children and I were attacked, the police kept saying, Diane, you must have lapses in your memory because there's holes in this. You could drive a semi-truck through. None of this makes sense. Um, You're forgetting something. I believed because I'd never had any dealings with authorities and I believed the authorities and so I thought they did that I had lapses of memory. I can't tell you how the towel got around my arms, so I know from my own personal experience that I did have at least that much of a lapse of memory. I don't know how the towel got around my arm. So when I, I would have, what people would call me up and people would say, I know so-and-so and he said such-and-such. Um, well, I have a na- another guy would call and say, I have a neighbor and he has a car that just looks just like that and he's been talking. These kinds of things were being said to me either by phone. People would stop me on my mail route. They would. I worked in Cottage Grove and people would drive all the way to Cottage Grove just to meet me on my mail route and tell me these kinds of things. So I would call the police or I would go to the police and I would say, these, I would say this is what's being told to me. Those are the kinds of things they would say that I changed my story. I wasn't changing my story. I was trying to help. The police kept saying I had lapses of memory. People were calling me and telling me things that I thought, well, maybe this is what happened that I don't know. And so I would tell the police, believing that I was helping them investigate. They didn't tell anybody that these are reports that I was giving them reports from other people. They would simply say, Diane came in and said such and such. The one about the ski mask was dreams that I was having. And they kept saying, well, maybe you forgot something. So when I would have a dream and I would wake up, I would think, well, maybe that's what I would forget. 
And so I, the ski mask story, I didn't tell the police. I was talking to somebody on the phone and I was trying to, and I was sharing this dream, this thought with somebody, trying to understand in the same way that you would talk to a psychologist or a psychiatrist so that you can, because if you talk, maybe you can reach something. Maybe you can find something that's inside you that's locked off. And so I was sharing this with somebody else and the police were tape recording those phone calls and then said, oh, there she goes. She changed her story. And that wasn't it. And they know that wasn't it. Wow. Okay. What the hell was that? That's called avoiding the question. Right. So they asked who were the assailants and mm. was there one, was there two, was there three elephants? And she went around with everything else. She is saying to us that people would drive to Cottage Cove or wherever she's from and uh, tell her their theory. Um, she was a postman so or post officer, whatever that, that they're called these days, um, and she was on different routes and she was on foot and all of this sort of stuff. Does she really want us to believe that she is telling us that people drove around this whole suburb to find her, to tell her their theory, that then she would go to the, the police. If someone had a suspect, they would go to the police. They would tell them the story. You know, oh, no, but I had dreams, and so now the police are believing that I that what I said in, in my dreams was my truth. It's just hogwash, and it's basically because she doesn't want to answer that question because she doesn't want to be tied down to one sort of suspect. And so all these different stories just keep sort of going around and it's just yeah it's basically how I talk you basically go on and on and on until you run out of things <laughs> yeah <say>. but <laughs> it's actually quite interesting because it's almost believable in a weird way oh you know I'm not a, a hardened you know parole board person <laughs> or, or an investigator but you hear that and you go what she's saying on a logical level does actually make a bit of sense if the police didn't write down correctly how she was reporting it and all she's got to do is sow some doubt doesn't she because, I mean, for a conviction, you have to be guilty beyond reasonable doubt. Well, when it comes to releasing someone from parole, presumably the same kind of theory applies. And if she's sowing seeds of doubt there, it could just be enough to pull put her parole over the edge. Now, I know that's not going to be the case here. And, in fact, <laughs> the parole board guy, he then asks uh, again about the assailant. The police said, strangers don't shoot strangers for no reason. So I believe this had to be somebody who knew me. They also, at one point, the last day that I got to see Christy in the hospital, I believe it was June 15th of 83, Doug Welch came to the hospital and said, Steve Downs did this. We know Steve Downs did this. You need to give us, you need to be willing to testify against him. I said, how do you know Steve Downs, my ex-husband? How do you know Steve Downs did this? Give me the evidence. He said, don't worry about the evidence. Just be willing to testify. I said, if you can't prove to me he did it, he's not the one that fired the gun. He said, but he was behind it. I said, I cannot testify against somebody unless you can prove to me that he did this. I know he hates me, but why would he hurt the kids? Doug Welch said, you better be willing to play ball or you'll never see your kids again. And I said, I cannot testify against somebody unless you can prove to me that he did it. The next day when I went to see my children, I was not allowed to see my children ever again. That gave me the belief that the police were absolutely convinced that somebody I knew did this. 
And if the police believed it, then I believed it. Now, if they want to turn us all around and say, Diane changed her story, that's not what happened. And you guys are on the parole board. And I know you work with the legal authorities. You work with police. You work with the, with the district attorneys. And so you know how they work. It's how they, I know now what they were trying to do. They were trying to scoop me into a corner so that, I don't know, so that I would say or do something that would incriminate me, which certainly worked. But, but that's not what happened. Though what I'm telling you is exactly what happened. Doug Welch came to the McKinsey, no, to the uh, the hospital in Springfield. Oh, I can't even think. McKinsey Willamette. No, anyway, to the Springfield Hospital. He sat right there. He caught me when I was coming through the front door. He pulled me into the lobby, and these are the things he said to me. I went to see Christy for 15 minutes because that's all I was allowed. I left, and he was standing there, and he goes, I'm not playing, Diane, and I said, Prove to me Steve did this. He says, let us worry about the proof. And I said, I can't testify against him unless you can prove to me he did this. And I left. The next day, I did not see my children ever, ever again until court. And that was it. And so I believed. I believed what the police, I thought the police believed. Now, maybe they did believe that. Maybe to this day they still believe it because Fred Hughie was another time he told my attorney, Jim Jagger, Jim Jagger said, Fred, you know Diane is innocent. He said, I know that and you know that, but she's covering for somebody and as long as she's going to cover for somebody, she's going to do that person's time. Okay. Um, I don't know what's worse doing this case is in 10 second bits or three minutes of double speak. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And again, it was just them saying, so who is this perpetrator? Who are the people who kidnapped you, uh, who uh, tried to abduct you in the car and whatever? Um, and she is going on with this. And Jim Jagger said this and Fred Hughie said this and someone else said that. And it's, she's going around and around and around. But the thing is, is that she is saying that these people that are in um, elected positions are actually saying that they're going to railroad her into going to prison because she won't testify against her ex-husband being the possible assailant. And what she's saying is like legal dynamite. If she's saying that this is what they told her and this is what they were going to do and they took her children off her until the next week. Um, I loved how she added that in. I was never, ever, ever to see them again until court which was like <laughs> weeks later um but she, she she just goes on and on with this saying all these things about these people and you know the the parole board guy is like listening and she's blaming these people saying that they were going to um put her in prison because she won't testify against her ex-husband where there is actually no love loss so it's just amazing that all of a sudden this is the story that she wants to tell about the prosecutor about the defense team about all these different people the da and all of that and it's just it just she was supposed to say oh it wasn't steve or it was steve or it wasn't um a black guy or it was that's what they wanted was that answer in three words and she went on with all of that instead it's really interesting because as you say if any of what she was saying was true that's really explosive and talks of a corruption that is pretty full on if innocent people, if the police are throwing innocent people in jail and taking them to court. So really explosive stuff. Now there has obviously been corruption in police forces, so that would not be unprecedented, but 
it just doesn't seem likely in in this scenario. But look, the parole board, they're interested and they ask her if she's standing by the comments she just said about Jim Jagger and Fred Huey. And look at what happens because she backpedals quickly. I'm not saying I'm not saying that. I'm saying that Jim Jagger told me Fred Hughie said this to him. I don't know that Fred Hughie said this. I have no reason to believe Fred Hughie said this now. But that's what Jim Jagger told me Fred Hughie said. So from that point on, I believed should we <laughs> from that point on, I believed that Fred Hughie believed that it was somebody that I knew. That's what I'm telling you. It, it, that is what shaped my belief patterns. And so when I would talk to the police, I spoke to the police as if it was somebody that was familiar to me. Not because I believed they were familiar to me, but because Fred Hughie told Jim Jagger and Jim Jagger... Jim Jagger told me that Fred Hughie told him this. Hmm. I have no reason to believe Fred Hughie would do that. I don't. Fred Hughie adopted my children, I think... During the trial, can I go ahead and jump ahead with this? Sure. Okay. During the trial, at the very end of the trial, Fred Hugie, they brought in a mock-up of the car, and Fred Hugie got a gun, and he was reenacting the crime. And when he was going through the motions of firing the gun at the Christie doll and at the Cheryl doll and at the Danny doll, he couldn't shoot the Danny doll because the Danny doll was back here. And he raised up and he looked at me and I went like this. And he went, he, his face, he had a, fa- a look of incredulation on his face and his mouth started to open and I nodded my head yes and he had to switch the gun to the left hand. A right-handed person could not have shot the Danny doll. Uh, Okay, before we move on, there's a couple of names she keeps mentioning there, Amanda. We've referred to them, but let's explain who they are. We've got Fred Hugie and Jim Jagger. Who are these two people? Well, Jim Jagger, as far as we're aware, is her lawyer and Fred Hugie is the prosecutor. So here's her saying that the prosecutor is in in court and looking to her to say my scenario isn't going to work and so you must be right about your story and she's giving visual cues and all of this sort of stuff. It's just fantasy land. She's certainly making some big accusations but in that clip she was off. She was racing. Yeah, but she backpedaled a bit and then she went forward, you know, oh, well, this is what they were saying, definitely, definitely, definitely. And then it's like, oh, well, that's what he said, that she said, that he said, that she said. And so I thought that that's what she said. And, you know, and this is what she's going on. Because if she mm-hmm. was making those allegations, they would have had to raise those. And so now it's like, oh, well, I assume that's probably what he said because, um, you know, Jim Jagger told me that Fred Hughie said this and blah, 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 blah. You know, and then she makes point that Fred Hughie actually adopted her children. So she's trying to do a conflict of interest in, in there as well. And she's just going on with any story and basically she's saying you know that that Hughie couldn't um approve the point of the shooting that it couldn't have been someone else and so she's saying you know that there was reasonable doubt suddenly and there wasn't because it was her sitting in the driver's seat turning around shooting the children and that's she's trying to say that someone else couldn't do it because they couldn't change hands to shoot but anyway that's an interesting note you've just brought up so the prosecutor in this case actually ended up adopting her children 
her two surviving children yeah um he spent a lot of time with them because obviously they were there for the prosecution not the defense um though the the two small children really didn't want to talk and uh, her daughter actually had a stroke and so couldn't really speak anyway um but they were needed to to testify so he spent a lot of time with these children and right. i just think it's a nice so, sort of um end note to the case mm. and if people haven't seen the movie small sacrifices with farrah fawcett playing this role um it's definitely worth seeing it even if it's just for that part of of how he actually spends the time with the kids it's just it's i don't know it's it's just a good part of of the story i think yeah it shows a nice side of humanity well look let's go back and see where she goes off to next it was at that time i don't think at any time before that did fred hugie believe that he was doing anything wrong. I think that he believed full bore that what he was doing was the right thing. But, and I'm not inside Fred Hugie's head, I don't have the right to speak for him and I won't speak for him, but it was after that he adopted my children and according to Christie, never said a bad word against me, ever. That was out of Christie's mouth. Fred Hugie, and all the time that he raised her, never spoke ill of me. I believe that Fred Hugie knows that there is a man out there that was hunting my children and it wasn't until after Christy told her schoolmates that I, she, she drew pictures in school and she said, this is the man who shot us. I didn't, I lied in court because they wanted me to say this and they wouldn't leave me alone, Dr. Peters. She said, Dr. Peterson kept pressuring me and he wouldn't leave me alone. Those children, the Andresons, told their mother, their mother told her, the, um, the apartment manager, and the apartment manager told somebody now, he, he didn't tell my attorney until 1991, but he apparently told somebody before that. But it was at that time when Christy was in that school and classmates with the Andresen twins that Fred Hugie decided to adopt my children. Okay, so that's where the recording ends. But, you know, to be honest, Amanda, I think we've got the picture there. She really could argue underwater with a mouthful of cement, couldn't she? Oh, absolutely. And as you can see, she, she tries to fill the story with these irrelevant facts that she tries to sort of embellish uh, to make it sound more logical. You know, oh, yeah, but my daughter had told someone who told someone who told a friend. She mm. does a lot of these Chinese whispers sort of things about um, how, how things get shared and that, you know, that's actually the official story of according to her, you know, but it just sort of gives her absolute zero credibility with, with what she's saying because she really is just going on and, you know, oh, you know, Fred Hughie never said anything bad about me to the kids and all of this. Yeah. He's a nice guy. That's why. He didn't yeah. try to kill them. Yeah, you know? of course. He doesn't want them to think that way about her ma the mum. No. He doesn't want her anywhere near them, but, you know, yeah. he's not an arsehole by the sounds of it. Uh, look, exactly. we've had one version of the story. Now we actually have another tape that shows another story. We were just out, I guess, sightseeing, I guess you'd say. And the kids got tired. They fell asleep in the car, so I decided to just head on home. But I saw a road I hadn't been on before. We like to take back roads and just went down that road. And there was a guy standing in the road flagging me down, so I stopped. Everything was done in a matter of five or 10 seconds. He swung himself around and fired twice. One caught me in the arm, the other one I went off somewhere. Danny cried the whole way. I could hear him softly just moaning and Christy was dying. God, the, all the blood, all the pain. 
That doesn't match up to what she said before. And and, no. and we should mention there's obviously editing cuts in that. Yeah. Um, uh, but she does seem like a very different woman. Yeah, because this is when she's now the the heroic mum. So this is before she's been arrested. So ah. everyone, you know how, how we've said before that people jump on these stories because they say when she goes to jail or he goes to jail, we've got this great yeah. interview that she did, which was... Which but was also, a it's a big story that, that makes perfect sense she, for news yeah. services to cover it. It was absolutely huge back then. I mean, in 1985, I think they made the Farrah Fawcett film. So, I mean, this was a big case, a big mm. story. So, um, and the fact because of all of these twists and turns. But, you know, we're, we're seeing the drama now, you know, but we're hearing a different story. They weren't going to go and meet a guy about some photos. They weren't going to go and talk to a girl about a horse. Isn't that a euphemism? I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> just went off on another tangent there. You know, but, like, she closes her eyes to be dramatic and, and she's softly spoken and she's got that Lady Diana thing. That's all I see when I see her is a evil Lady Diana, Princess Diana, whatever you want to call her. You know, but she's going, oh, you know, and all I could see was the blood and Danny was moaning and one of the daughters was crying and all oh, the blood, all oh, the blood. It's just so dramatic. And, you know, oh, but I like to take the back roads because by now people are starting to come forward saying uh we saw you on the back roads you were not flying off to a mm. to a hospital that that quick that you were actually taking your sweet ass time and so she's starting to sort of have to piece these sorts of information into the story rather than saying yeah of course i went the back road i, w I went to heather's place you know so she doesn't have that perfected story that we've just seen in the parole board hearing. We can see that that's her, her, her perfect story now, even though she forgot half of it. But going back, <laughs> this is just one version and there is more to come. All right. I'm sorry. Before we move on, what kind of euphemism is going to see a woman about a horse? It's 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 about going to the toilet or something. It's a, um, I'm going to see a man about a horse. It's a thing. It's Look it up. It is It is the thing. But she was seeing a woman about an actual horse. There was no euphemism yeah, no, in there. But, I know, but it was just, it was just, I had that saying in, in my head that I said that. <laughs> just shut up. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The interview continues with her giving more and more details. Let's take a look. And as I say, she may be the only one to get me out of this. Would I have brought her to the hospital? Wouldn't she be the one that I would make sure is dead? There are too many holes in it. If I had shot my own children, would I not have done a good job of it? Why would I have taken my kids to the hospital? Wouldn't I have made sure they were dead and then cried crocodile tears? That's insane to think that I would do such a thing and then bring the, the witnesses in against myself. That's crazy. A lot of anger there. There is, and it's that same story again. You know, I, I would have done it differently if I wanted to actually successfully kill them. She's pissed off that she didn't kill them, literally. You know, she, she's ended up with two severely disabled children and a dead daughter. And, you know, oh, there's no crocodile tears and everything, and I'm cranky that uh, people can even consider that that isn't the true story, that some strange black man tried to um, uh, steal the car. It's just amazing that she is in defence rather than actually going on about the grief and the terror and focusing on her children she's focusing on every other person in the world mm. except for her children because she's saying you know well, this is the story what why would i want my children to be there to testify against me because she's stuffed up and so she's angry because she's scared because she knows where she's going mm. yeah absolutely well look now we have an interview with her that <laughs> it really justifies belief 
This man shot my daughter. My first reaction was to snap back to my childhood, to the pain that had happened to me back then, my marriage, my entrapment by society. This man was bigger than me. He was stronger than me. He had more power because he had a gun. And I stood there and I looked at Christy reaching and the blood that just kept gushing out of her mouth. And, and I, what do you do? Well, I don't think you sit there thinking about your childhood, do you? Exactly. You know, a man is shooting at her children and she goes to think about her own childhood. This is mm. self-serving. This is about a uh, narcissist who has nothing else to think about except for the history of uh, feminism and that she is now this poor, helpless victim uh, because this big, brave man is actually attacking her. She's not going to save her children. She's not trying to defend them. She's not trying to do anything else, but she's standing there going away into fantasy land to think about about uh, the generations of feminism. It's mm. like, just, just, I'm so angry. Sorry. Well, let me make you a bit more angry because I think I saw her smile during that last bit. Can we go back a bit and just play that last clip again? Just the last part of it, please. The blood that just kept gushing out of her mouth. And, and I, what do you do? Yeah, right there when she talked about the blood gushing out of her mouth, there's an actual smile. Yeah, because that was the result she wanted. Yeah. She wanted these children dead. She's seeing a child gurgling and drowning in their own blood. Yeah. And that gives her pleasure. And she looks away. That is wow. one of the only times she looks away from her in interviews in any of these because she looks at them to make sure that they're listening to her and are believing what she's saying. So then she looks away and smiles because she's remembering how great that felt, that she knew that she was one child down, two to go. You know, it's it's like those moments when we talk to serial killers who actually do admit their crimes, when they get that joy going back to that moment of the kill and the excitement and how they relive that. And it's, it's like in that moment, she's forgotten where she is and because she's talking about it, the... the the sensory feeling she had in that moment, because as you say, she was doing that, came flooding down and it was, it looked like she got a warm joy over her. It's really, yeah. you know, like it's horrific to us, but you can see the joy there. Absolutely. She was happy to, to see that. Yeah, and as you said, she got lost in that for that mm. split second, but that's why we have the videos now, just to show you guys how that can happen so easily, that they lose that sort yeah. of mask that they have up because she did go back into that moment. You could see it, you know. So, yep, good spotting, Robert. Thank you very much. Let me also ask you this. If she liked killing the kids, why didn't she finish the job? You said she was going slow to the hospital to try and take a time so that they would die. Why didn't she just get in there and finish the job? Because she really couldn't shoot them a second time. Because um, like that's she not said believable? Earlier, you just yeah, strangers right. don't kill strangers. And it is true. We look at stranger killings a lot. You know, there is some that we know that the victims know the killer and vice versa. But usually it doesn't happen. And killing children is even more rare. A guy's not going to walk up and say, I want your car and shoot children dead. It's not what's going to happen. So she couldn't actually say, oh, and then they went back and did three more shots, e execution style. When she was at 
when she was close to the hospital, she assumed they weren't going to make it. She made sure that they were that close. You know, Danny ended up in a wheelchair. Uh, Christy, I think it is, en ended up having a stroke, and so she lost the feeling down one side of her body, and the other one Jeez. did die. So, you know, this is what she was expecting to be the outcome. She expected them to die. You shoot someone, you think they're going to die, let's face it, and that's why she went slow, because she could see the blood loss, she could see what was happening, and she thought that by the time they got there, it would be too late, but... Right. Our doctors and nurses do good jobs. They do. Well, look, Downs continues on the same diatribe. Uh, let's have a look. The gun kept firing and firing and firing, and it, it, it made, it was monotonous. It just kept going. It was like a slow-motion picture. When he swung around, he was pointing when he swung around, it hit the tips of my fingers. The gun hit the tips of my fingers, and that snapped me, and I went, wait a minute. I'm not trapped by society. I don't care if he is bigger. If I stand here and I say, yeah, here, take the keys. I mean, there's nothing I can do. You win because you have the gun. My kids are going to die. And I'm not going to let my kids die. And so instead of giving him the keys, I feigned throwing the keys. It's interesting seeing that footage that was spliced into that grab of her reenacting the scene with a reporter in at the car. Um, she seemed happy reenacting that. Oh, she was, and she actually hits her cast in that and actually has a good laugh about it, saying, oh, that hurt me so much. It's like, well, if you hit your cast, Cunny, and you actually had a shot arm at the time, that would have hurt too if you had really done this, pretending to throw the keys and everything like the guy's, you know, a puppy. But, you mm. know, but I love I love her word choice. You know, she says that the shooting was monotonous and slow motion. It was three shots oh, and, and one at her. Um, you know, it wasn't. It would have been to anyone in that situation would go, it just flashed before my eyes. Everything yep. happened so quickly. People don't go, oh, it went monotonous. No, it's because she carefully Monotonous is not a word you would think. No. Uh, when it comes to a shooting, the last word on the planet Earth I would think of is monotonous. Exactly. And here we have her saying that. Then she again goes on about, you know, the patriarchy and everything, that she's not a slave to society and she wasn't going to let this man take the car and everything. I mean, I can see what she's trying to do because she's trying to say, you know, I'm the woman who stood up to the man, but it's not working, especially because she is the killer. But at the same time, um, she is just going on and on and on trying to make these stories seem believable, but it's actually not happening. And in fact, it makes me have two rules now. Don't talk to police and don't do media interviews. I mean, come don't, on, don't guys. Don't say that. We, we want them to do these. <laughs> Jesus, we well, wouldn't have a show. Do, but, but, I mean, if, if you're trying to get away with murder, you don't go and do the media right. circuit. This is I not mean. a how-to guide, remember. This is not a how-to get away with murder guide. Um, look, She's then asked if she felt lucky to survive and her answer was, hang on, it won't shock you. After everything she's done today, this probably won't shock you, but have a look. When he was swinging in the direction of the keys firing the gun, he hit my arm. Everybody says, you sure were lucky. Well, I don't feel very lucky. I couldn't tie my damn shoes for about two months. It is very painful. It is still painful. The scar is going to be there forever. I'm going to remember that night for the rest of my life, whether I want to or not. I don't think I was very lucky. I think my kids were lucky. If I had been shot the way they were, we all would have died. I I'm sorry. I'm, yeah. Actually, 
don't know what to say to that. She was unlucky because she couldn't tie her shoelaces for two months. Her daughter had a stroke, her son is in a wheelchair, and one died. And she thinks the kids were lucky. This is yeah, because she bizarre. wasn't shot as seriously. It, it defies belief and it just proves, like, I mean, come on. <laughs> right there, that clip tells you she did it. That clip yeah. is all the proof you need to know this is a psychopath who, um, who, who can't think outside of her own thoughts and feelings. No, she can't. And, uh, you know, as you said, this confirms her guilt. This is someone who is so in-depth in what she wanted and how this was going to turn out that she has no compassion for her children. You know, oh, they're lucky because I lived and so I could um, drive them to the hospital. No, your children are unlucky because you're their mother. Yeah. Basically, this is what it down to these poor children. I'm so glad that Fred Hughie took these children and gave them an absolute amazing life. Yeah. Um, the fact that she then went and got pregnant and, and had another baby and her response to that was, it's easy to get pregnant and I need children because they make me feel good. This is her response to things like this. This is how she goes along with this. She is just the most vile person. I mean, I'm a mum and there is nothing I wouldn't do for my children that to consider murdering them for some guy it just it, it defies belief and it just it makes me so angry i just i'm speechless i can't i can't yeah it's funny this was already a bad case but that last clip is just beyond the pale to be honest um look diane downs was found guilty of first degree murder of cheryl and two counts of attempted murder and another two counts of criminal assault against danny and christy she was sentenced to life with an additional 50 years danny and christy as we mentioned earlier were adopted by the prosecutor fred hugie diane's fourth child was taken by the state and was later adopted amanda a shocking case but one that shows and is important to show that people there are just bizarre people horrible people out there i I have found this one really really fascinating disturbing but fascinating yeah well, I mean, it's seeing a different sort of killer. So we often do most murders and serial killers mm. and things like that. So to see a mother kill her, her children, I think it's just a different sort of psychopathy that we actually need to look at. So um, this is a good introduction because we will be doing Susan Smith in an upcoming season. So I just think that just to see this evilness, and as I said, being a mum, I just these these ones get me more so because I would I would die for my children, um, and I wouldn't consider them lucky if I lived kind of thing i just mm. it, it makes no sense but um yeah this one did this one boiled my blood a little i have to admit yeah well look don't forget all the videos from this series are available as a video by going to mwm.uscreen.io the videos are all part of season 11 which we are currently on so that means currently there are seven episodes and the library is growing all the time that's mwm.uscreen.io amanda thank you for this week we will see you again next week on monsters who murder serial killer confessions 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.